with some prayer. The Lord be with you. Lord, we thank you. Well, we thank you that you've given us minds um, to think about you and to consider the depths of your riches. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would equip us uh, to, to continue in that, that great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and minds, that we would actually consider you um, with our thoughts. Bless us now as we um, talk about Anglican theology. Help us to understand um, not just about you, but, but in such a way, Lord, that it would, it, would, it would travel from our heads into our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we have been talking um, about the joys of Anglicanism, and we, we, we've talked some about history, and we've talked for a couple weeks about um, worship, and then the next two weeks we're going to talk about Anglican um, theology, Anglican theology. And so, um, just here's where we're going with it. Um, this week, I want to I give you a little bit of historical perspective, because one thing you have to realize about um, theology and thinking and talking about God is it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It actually happens in a historical context. And, in, and sometimes in history, um, other things are more important than, than things over here. And so you, got, you have to understand what's going on historically to know why um, certain syllables are getting certain emphases. And, and that certainly is true of, of Anglican theology. So we're going to do a historical setting. Um, we do want to talk about a head knowledge. And some people um, hear theology and they hear about their heads and, and they're thinking, ah, oh, this sounds boring. But, but it's not. It's actually, I think it's really exciting. Um, and it's very practical. So I do want to take it um, from not just the sort of pie in the sky thinking about God, but actually to, to practical realities of what it means. Um, and then the other thing about Anglican theology is you cannot separate what we know about God in our heads um, from the way in which we worship God. And I know Tripp talked about this some as well, but, but as Anglicans, our theology is also almost primarily done in our worship, okay? And so we want to take what we know about God and see how that translates, it and translates into how we worship God. So we're going to talk about a head knowledge and a heartfelt expression. Um, we'll see how far we get today, um, but, but that's, that's sort of where we're headed, and we'll finish it up next week. So this is a two-part class. Um, I think Tripp did this a few weeks ago. If you have a question, first of all, just raise your hand. I'm happy to answer it. Just raise your hand. I'll, 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 you can, I'll answer your question. Uh, if you have a complicated question, um, call Tripp. <laughs> um, but, <it laughs> yeah. but if you have an easy question, um, or if you don't want to raise your hand, or if, if it's a question you want me to think about and ask, answer next week, you can text me. There's my number. Um, you can write that down. Um, just shoot me a text, and we can either try to answer at the end of the end of our session today um, or next week. But again, um, if, you, if you're in the middle of something, you have a question, um, just raise your hand and we can talk about it. Before you ask me questions, though, I want to ask you a question. Raise your hand if you would consider yourself a theologian. Is you okay? Yes? Yes? Bob and Chris? Yes? And Marion? Very good. Now, Raise your hand if you ever talked or thought about God. Okay. You, friends, right, hands back up. If you've talked or thought about God, you're a theologian, whether you know it or not. Theology, if we got to the origin, theos, is, this is Greek, theos is God, and logia is the speaking of a, something. Um, 
and logos even is, is word, the word of God, which we know is the son Jesus. And so if you've ever thought of or spoken of God, whether it's to your spouse or to your friends or to your children, um, you're a theologian, okay? And so the, challenge, the question isn't whether or not you're a theologian. The question is, are you a good one? And that's what we are hoping um, to explore today is, is what is a right knowledge and understanding of God expressed in worship um, so that when we talk about God and who he is, we talk about him in a way that's knowledgeable, in a way that, um, that speaks truly of who he is. And so that's part of, of Anglican theology is sort of knowing um, these things. But what is it about our theology that makes it distinctly Anglican as opposed to, I don't know, Presbyterian or Baptist or, or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox? Is there anything distinctly Anglican? And you know, yes and no, but I would say so there's a combination of these three things um, that, that make us make our theology slightly different from other streams of Christianity. Um, the first one is we certainly consider our, our understanding of God in continuity with the ancient church. Um, you know, this is what the earliest apostles believed about Jesus. This is what the earliest church fathers believed about Jesus. When the English reformers, and also the continental ones, Cranmer and Luther, I mean, Calvin and Luther, but, even, but Cranmer as well, and some of our earliest theologians, they wanted to say, um, <clears throat> if there's some question or some dispute, they would go back and say, well, what did the earliest disciples of Jesus say about this? So the 12 apostles, but even those first, second, and third century theologians. What did they have to say about this issue? And so they wanted to reach back and, and grab that. Um, secondly, Anglican theology is rooted in the Reformation. It is, it is Reformed theology. And so when you read the earliest Anglican reformers, you realize that, you know, we like to talk about Anglicanism being a middle way between the Catholic Church and the, um, the Reformation churches. But in terms of theology, they were pretty well over here with the Reformation. Now what's happened is over the years, and not necessarily in a bad way, um, we've been able to rethink some of these things that were really important at the time of the Reformation and realize, okay, maybe we can bring some of this stuff back in in a healthy way. But, but, but at the time and in the moment, um, they, were, they were solidly Reformed, although it was still a liturgical form of worship. And that's the second part. Anglican theology is expressed in liturgical worship. And so guys like Thomas Cramer, the first, the first um, Church of England Archbishop of Canterbury, um, he said, look, liturgical worship is good. This is something we want to, to use, but, but we want to frame it and shape it in such a way that reflects a right understanding of who God is. And so we have to know about God in order to worship him in a way um, that gives him glory, in a way that's consistent with who he is. And so Cramer said, look, we're going to be liturgical in our worship. We're not going um, to just go throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. Um, but we're going to change things up. We're going to switch it around in such a way that, that what we believe is reflected in how we worship. Um, and the other thing Cramer would say, and we'll get to this, is how we worship shapes what we believe. Okay? And so this is important for Anglicans. So think about this, okay? Who God is shapes how we worship, and we can talk about that. But also, how we worship shapes our understanding of who God is. And I would just, I would point to it this way. If we had a style of worship that was consuming, if we came here to be entertained by music and came to here to be entertained by um, a great talk, um, and then said a couple of prayers and left, I think we would have to say that, that God would be very similar to that prosperity God that Tripp was talking about, who's here to 
bless us, you know, maybe entertain us, to, to give to us. Um, and we know that's not true about who God is. But if that's our constant style of worship, um, you just have to be careful because that will start to shape our understanding of who God is as well. So what we know about God is reflected in our worship, but um, <clears throat> how we worship shapes sometimes what we know about God. And we can talk about that as we go along. Um, so that is Anglican theology. Um, so theology and it's Anglican theology. And then what we want to talk about now is, um, before we do anything else, is the historical setting of it. So any questions at this point? Y'all tracking with me? Hopefully we'll just keep kind of coming back to these themes and let them sink in a little bit. Um, but first of all, historical setting. What, what was going on? Well, we all know about this guy. Who's that? Henry. What number Henry? The eighth. Um, why is his wife ripped in half? Because he divorced her, right? And so that's sort of the thing. I don't know, if you're in a cocktail party, do you ever say, well, where do you go to church? You say, I go to the Anglican church. And, and what do they say? Oh, you're the church that was started by who had all the divorces. He had six wives, Henry VIII did, okay? He had six wives. Um, the question is, do you worship in a church that was started because a king wanted a divorce from his wife? And if the answer is yes, um, then we probably should just leave and go somewhere else. <laughs> um, well, yeah, just bear with me, bear with me. After, after trip sermon, after you've, never mind. Um, so here's the deal. Henry was the king of England, and he wanted a male heir, and his first um, wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was the, her nephew, I think it was her nephew, Charles V, was the king of Spain. Remember that, this is going to be important. Um, she, was, she was really faithful to Henry, and she had, I want to say she had six children and maybe four boys, but all of her children except for one um, died very young or was stillborn. Um, the only one who survived was Mary. Um, she would become known as, um, well, Bloody Mary, or Mary, Queen of Scots. And she was 40. Henry didn't have a male heir. Um, and he, he realized that to keep the Tudor dynasty alive, that, that he had to have a son. And so he sought a divorce, or not a divorce, an annulment from the Pope. And we can get into those um, details um, later. But, but the Pope long and short of this, it wouldn't grant the annulment. Um, sometimes you read about it and you think, you hear that, you know, the Catholic Church, uh, the, the Pope was being really faithful. Um, he was consistent with Catholic theology. And yeah, that, all that is true. But also, the Pope was currently imprisoned under Charles V, who was Henry's wife's nephew. And so for the Pope to grant the annulment was problematic, um, both politically and faithfully. And so Henry said, well, then, I don't have to report to the Pope um, I'm actually the head of the church in England, and I want an annulment, and I'm going to get an Archbishop of Canterbury who's going to give me one. And um, that's essentially what he did. And, and Henry didn't actually want to leave the Catholic Church. Um, and Henry did some very, very bad things that on many levels we should repent of. But at the same time, the Archbishop of Canterbury saw this as an opportunity to reclaim the English identity of the church. And to say, look, there's something unique about the church in England that has always been there, that is for the good of um, Christianity, that we want to reclaim. 
um, and it gave Cramer a chance for some reforms. And what you see then, in the midst of some very bad behavior, um, God doing some very good things um, through very flawed men and women. So, if we were to go way back in time, we would see that, yes, the Church of England began in 1532, but the church in England um, has roots way, way back. And we're talking like 200, 300 A.D., um, even earlier actually. But between 200 and 300, somewhere in there was the first um, English martyr, St. Alban. Okay? And so the church was established enough in England within one or one and a half centuries of Jesus' death for them to have a martyr. That's a pretty big statement, okay? Because um, there was no pope yet. Um, that stuff was still being developed. But here you have a very distinctly English and um, Celtic, that's a Celtic cross, Celtic church um, developing in England. Um, so England at the time was part of the Roman Empire. Um, Rome had to pull back out of England, okay? And then a couple hundred years later, um, Pope Gregory, one of the, he was really one of the first sort of recognized popes who was consolidating power, um, he sent a missionary to England, which at this point wasn't really part of the Roman Empire. Um, St. Augustine, um, who became known as St. Augustine of Canterbury, different from the theologian St. Augustine of Hippo, but anyhow, he sent him to Britain, okay? He sent him to evangelize the, um, um, oh, I'm free, the barbarians, if you will, outside of the kingdom in Britain to tell them about Jesus. He gets there, and what does he find? He finds Christians. They're already there. He finds a church structure. It's already there. This is before, this is way before um, the England, church in England had come into the Roman Catholic fold. And so, so what happened is he's given permission um, to work there to set up um, a, a, a see for the bishop. And then they have a council, okay, called the Synod of Whitby. And this is important for us as Anglicans. You had two sort of competing styles of church. You had the Celtic Christianity and you had the Roman Christianity. And at the Synod of Whitby, among other things, these two competing factions agreed on the date of Easter to be in line with the Roman Catholic Church, in addition to other traditions to be in line with the Roman Catholic Church. And, and you see a bit of the Church of England coming under the fold, then, of the Roman Catholic Church. But you, all, you see this sort of distinctive roots here in the early history of the church. So, moving on. You know, by 1382, you still have this unique English style of church, although it's in the Roman Catholic Church. And this guy, um, John Wycliffe, um, he translated the Bible into the English language. It was a Middle English. It was the first English Bible. Um, so even then, when, when the only authorized scripture was in Latin, we had people saying, no, look, we're different. We need something in our language for our people. And this happened, um, as you can see, a couple hundred years before the Reformation. Any questions about that? Did y'all know that? Is that news? Oh, y'all knew that. Y'all are smart. So, by the time of the Reformation, this is what church was like. Um, I, the Catholic Church is is not like this anymore. They have some, some some quirky things, but they've also they've reformed themselves in time. Okay, and so when I when I talk about this, I, I don't like to say the Catholic Church. I, I want to say the medieval Catholic Church what the medieval Catholic Church was like in the time of England. Um, so, for instance, Revelation. Where do, we th- where do we learn about God? In the Scriptures. That's right. 
Um, but the Catholic Church at the time, the medieval Catholic Church, was saying, well, there's these two streams. You learn about him in scriptures, but you also learn about him through church teaching. Okay? Um, and these are, they're both authoritative uh, for our lives. Okay? And so, you know, that gives the church a lot of power all of a sudden um, to determine and to say what's true about, about God in a way that can't be disputed. Um, because you're a peasant, right? You're working a farm in England. You don't speak Latin, but every time you go to church, they speak Latin. And every time you even, you can't read, but even if you could, you couldn't read the Latin Bibles that were around. All right, so Revelation is scripture and tradition for the medieval church in England. Um, second thing, clericalism, okay? This, this really high elevation of clergy. And it was this idea that, um, you know, the clergy need to mediate to God for the people, and so if you had a problem with God, or if you had a prayer or, or anything, if you wanted access to God, you'd have to come through me, or Tripp, or John, or your clergy at the time. That was sort of how that worked. Um, the clergy didn't trust the laity too much, especially with things like communion. And so if you had the courage to take communion at all, you certainly weren't going to take the wine because you might spill it. And the clergy wouldn't give you the wine. And so you could have the bread, but, but you know, you were just peasants. We were clergy. Um, we really needed to protect, protect these holy things. That's what's happening um, in, in the church, the medieval Catholic church in England. How do you get into heaven? Well, it's a, a combination. It's, it's faith and works, okay? So faith and God's grace, yeah, they'll get you in. But if you want to stay, you better have merit. <clears throat> That's how it worked. It's the same problem, by the way, um, if you read Galatians, that Paul was dealing with. Um, the, his opponents in Galatians, they wanted to say, look, yes, Jesus, he'll get you in, um, but you have to follow the law to stay in. And if you don't follow the law, you're out. And that's what was happening here in the medieval Catholic Church. Um, so grace gets you in and merit keeps you there. If you didn't have enough merit for yourself, keep in mind, there was enough um, that's been stored up by the saints um, there was uh, what was called a treasury of merit that was accessible for those who got indulgences. Um, if you got an indulgence, you could get some merit, and so you could reduce your penance, or you could reduce your time in purgatory. Um, there are different ways to get an indulgence, but one of them was simply to pay up. And if you paid up, you would get your indulgence. Do you know what that money went to? The building fund. <laughs> And so, if you think you're lacking in merit, you can see Trip after, after Sunday school. <laughs> no, but it did. It went to the building fund. St. Peter's Basilica, that was built largely on indulgences. Have you heard of, this is a contemporary application. You, have you all, you've heard of your carbon footprint, right? We all have a carbon footprint, and the idea is to reduce our carbon footprint and um, there are websites you can go to that if you decide that, you know what, I really need that SUV, that big Tahoe, I know it's going to raise up my carbon footprint, and so I feel guilty about it. So instead of stopping driving the Tahoe, you can pay money to a website um, to plant some trees or something that will reduce your carbon footprint, okay? Um, that's kind of like an indulgence, okay? I'm doing this bad thing. I'm going to pay, I'm going to draw on this merit over here by paying or doing something, and, and that'll reduce it. And uh, I don't want to trivialize it, but really, that's sort of, if that was an official teaching, that certainly is what people were hearing, okay? 
<laughs> and this is, um, that was Luther's problem, that was Calvin's problem, and it was Cramer's problem. That's really what put Luther over the edge was this issue of indulgences. Okay, so then we have a guy like Thomas Cramer. He's Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, he's helping Henry. Um, there's some things happening that really are, are very bad, but at the same time, he had a passion for reforming the Church of England so that the people of England would know and love Jesus, okay? Um, And so if you were to read his preface to his very first prayer book, it says this. His goal is that the people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be more inflamed with the love of his true religion. He wanted to reform not just a church but a whole country so that people would love Jesus. That is a worthy goal, and that's what he was attempting to do. This is his anthropology. That's another theological word, but anthropology just means how he believed, how he understood men and women. And this is how we operate. Think about this for your your own self, okay? What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves... The will chooses, and the mind justifies. And so if you see something you love, if your heart really loves it, your will is going to choose it, and then your mind is going to think of some reasons why that's okay. That, that's that's what, how we work. And so what Cramer realized is, well, we've got to capture hearts. <coughs> and we capture hearts, and people want to choose God, um, and, and then the, their minds will be turned towards God and his, his things. And so he sought to... Um, that's another quote from Cramer. He sought to engender what he called a true and lively faith in the hearts of the English people. And that was, that's his program. That's his goal uh, for the English Reformation. Um, and so how does he do it? Well, he has the Articles of Religion, what we call now the 39 Articles. And we'll go through some of these this morning and next week. He had the Book of Homilies. Imagine this, that you were a preacher and you've been preaching according to the Roman Catholic Church, and you weren't sure about these things, but you're not real well-educated, and all of a sudden things change, um, and now you've got this sort of new uh, reformed theology. How are you going to preach on that? Or do you think Cramer was going to trust these guys in his churches? No, not yet. And so he had a book of homilies, okay? There were homilies, I think there were 30 or so, that would be read um, just... Uh, or, or, you know, in a sort of a continuous fashion, you get to 30 and you start over again at 1, in his churches, um, to, that's what the people were, were preaching. That's what they were hearing um, in the English language was these homilies written mostly by Cramer. And finally, um, the Book of Common Prayer, and sort of the standard for us as Anglicans is a little bit later, 1662. Um, but that's where the rubber meets the road between theology and worship is in our prayer book. And we'll talk about that some as well. And the intended result is this, a robust knowledge of God that is given heartfelt expression um, in worship and in works, okay? A true and lively faith, a a faith that produces fruit um, in in the followers of Jesus. Any questions so far? Comments? Anything? Okay. Okay. yeah, Randy. Yeah, that you know, 
it was a rough couple hundred years in England. Oh, yeah, of course. The question is, did the people react favorably? I mean, did they like what they were hearing? Um, and I would say largely yes. I mean, there's some very comforting things when you realize that justification is not dependent on what you do, um, but on what God has done. And that the faith is sort of key and not your works. Um, there's some real comfort there. Um, practically speaking, you know, it, it would end up, it would go back and forth for a few years because um, Mary actually would gain the throne at one point and um, she would behead lots of people and, and turn the country back to Catholicism. Um, and then when she died, the people were like, well, we've had enough of that. Um, and Elizabeth was queen. And Elizabeth kind of stabilized things for a while. Um, but then the Puritans um, came in and they took charge. There was the English, English Civil War for a while. And then after that, they went back to Church of England. And at that point, um, the English, they were really like, you know, that's enough. Um, let's just do something that's going to keep everybody happy. So we quit fighting with each other. And I, I think for the regular sort of person in the pew, the stability is, is sort of what they longed for. And so they liked the doctrines. They didn't like people being beheaded. Um, but at the end of the day, um, they, they just want things settled down. And it settled down with this. And um, I, think, I think we could say that it was pretty, pretty wholesome and well-received. But at the same time, they were, in many ways, they were just sort of just bounced back and forth. And they didn't, you know, they were really kind of happy doing whatever, but they probably liked hearing it in their own language as well. So it's a good question. There's George Whitfield. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was, but not all of us are. Um, okay, so the, the question is, I think underneath it is, since we've left the Episcopal Church, have we had to make any changes as Anglicans? Um, and, and, and so the question is, is there anything I had to do or change to or adapt to? Um, and I... Th- yeah, or any priest. And I think I can speak for Tripp, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I did not have to make any changes whatsoever because I think the Episcopal Church left the Anglican Church. And so I feel like I've always believed this stuff, and the church I loved was drifting away. And so I did not make any changes. Um, you know, structurally, there's some things that are a little different. Um, we'll probably not get into today, but I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, but in terms of my belief, that's sort of the church left and I stayed. Um, and that's, that's sort of, I think Tripp's probably the same, the same way. So good question. All right. You all ready? Put your thank you caps on. All right. Um, <clears throat> so we want to take a head knowledge and see how it's expressed in worship. And that will probably be mostly our focus next week. Um, but I want to go through a few of the articles of religion, talk about what we know about God, what we know about salvation, um, and what we know about the church. The church will probably, we'll probably start on that next week. But um, articles one through five, um, and maybe a couple more after, these are about God and who he is. I better pull out my 39 articles. Um, and so you see them right there. Um, there's one about the Holy Trinity. There's one about the resurrection. There's one about the Word or the Son of God. Um, if you had a prayer book, 
Um, you can find these in the back of it, in the historical document section. Um, if you don't have a prayer book, I would recommend getting one. Um, a Book of Common Prayer, um, 1979 is what we're using in, um, here at St. Paul's. But it has, you know, all of our worship. So if, you're, if you've only worshipped in Door Hall, the worship we're using comes straight out of the prayer book. Um, if you worship in the church building, um, you, would, you would use an actual prayer book in your hands. But here in the back, it has the articles of religion. Um, and they put it in really small print, and they called it historical. But these are, for Anglicans around the world, sort of the governing um, documents uh, for us as, as, as what we believe as Anglicans. Yes, Joy. I wasn't just wasn't going to talk about it. <laughs> I can. Um, oh, that's supposed to be number two. The one that's missing is number three. Uh, the one up there of the Word or Son of God is number two. Number three is of the going down of Christ into hell. Um, thanks, Joy. <laughs> um, and I would love to talk about that with you all um, later. Um, but, but not this morning. I was going to focus on the basics. Um, but that, sorry, uh, the typo is there. That should be number uh, two up there of the Word or Son of God. Um, I, I skip a few. I was just trying to hit the high points. But, but that's an interesting one, so we can talk about that. Text me a question. <laughs> so the first thing is, what do we believe about God? Now, these are not going to be controversial. These are not going to be different than you find um, in almost any uh, faith tradition. These are issues that were settled um, more or less by three, four, five hundred A.D., okay? Um, and so we'll, we'll hit on these, these briefly, but then we'll get into the, the real issue of the Reformation was salvation. And you see that because there's a lot of articles about it. Um, but we believe that God is Trinity, okay? And so this article would go on to say um, there's one living and true God... He's infinite in power and wisdom and goodness. He is the creator, okay, and this is important. He is the creator and preserver of all things. Um, there was a philosophy that said God was a creator, but that's all he did. Do you remember what that was called? Deism, right. So thank, you know, Thomas Jefferson, um, Benjamin Franklin. They were largely deists. God was the big clockmaker. He set creation in motion, and then he let it go. Um, but this says very differently. It said God is the creator and the preserver, okay? So he created the world, and he is continually uh, preserving it through his Holy Spirit. He's still working in the world today. Um, in the unity of this God, there are three persons. Okay, this is where it gets complicated. There are three persons made of one substance, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons and one substance, um, and at the end of the day, you just have to say, okay. Um, you know, I can give you analogies, but they're all heresies. Um, <clears throat> the best thing I can say, there's a, I should put it up. I'll, I'll bring it next week. There's a, a, a graphic that says, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and there's lines in between each of them that say, Father is not the Son. Son is not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not the Father, and so forth and so on, and yet they're all united in the middle as, as one God. And um, one God, three persons, same substance, um, and that's sort of, you know, that's, that's how it is. And um, if you come to church on Trinity Sunday, so the Sunday after Pentecost, um, somebody will give you a fabulous sermon on how that works. 
Um, but it is important that we recognize, you know, so why is it like this? Okay. Um, we were at a Mere Anglicanism conference last week, and um, it was on Islam. And what happened is Muhammad was actually presented a very false view of the Trinity. And he was led to believe that, um, that Mary and God procreated and had Jesus, and the three of them demanded worship. And, and he rightly rejected it. Muhammad did. He said, I'm not, no. <laughs> if Mary is the, the mother of God, if that's what that means, I, no, I reject that. Um, and so to actually understand, no, first of all, that's not what happened. Um, and secondly, to say, why would it be important that, or why would it be helpful, no, important, essential even, that God is in relationship? Okay? Well, think about it this way. Um, our scriptures say what about God? God is love. God is love. Okay? Now, who does God love? Everything. Okay? So God loves his creation for sure. Um, but if God is love, and God's only love was, could be directed at his creation, if there's nothing else to love, then God is dependent on us, okay? He has to have us to love us to be the love that he is. Does that make sense? Um, but if God is Trinity, he has a love, a perfect and holy love within himself. Um, he doesn't need us to be love because he's got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they love each other perfectly, and we are just a, um, a product of that love. Um, we are a natural consequence of God's love um, for himself, perfectly and in Trinity. Um, and so that's important. It makes logical sense. So it's not just, well, the Bible says it, um, but it also, when you think about it logically like that, you say, okay, I can see how that, I can see how that makes sense. Um, I know it's not real clear, um, but that's sort of where we are, you know, in terms of the Trinity. Yeah, please. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Thanks, Trip. That, that was, I forgot about that part. That's a good part. Um, so, it, you know, it's important today. It, is, you know, if Islam's on the rise um, and you're engaging people about the God we believe in, um, you have to talk about this and you have to think about it. And so, um, and so this is a, a worthwhile thing to consider. Um, uh, just really quickly on those other ones. So Article 2 is about the word of the Son of God, and it basically says Jesus Christ had two natures, um, human and divine, and these are inseparable, okay? And so what you have to do then when you're reading Scripture is to say Jesus is both God and man at the same time, um, and we can't read Scripture and say, oh, look, Jesus is angry in the temple, He's overturning the tables. He's driving out with a whip, the money changers. That's the human Jesus we're seeing. Um, you can't say that. You can't separate these. And so um, the anger of the human Jesus is the anger of the divine Jesus. And so it's a godly anger. And so we've got to deal with that when we're reading Scripture. We can't say, well, there's the human Jesus, but over here, resurrecting Lazarus, there's the divine Jesus. He's human and divine at the same time. Um, that's, again, important for understanding of, of Christ and our understanding of salvation. Um, Article 4, he was raised from the dead. Article 5, um, we have a Holy Ghost 
um, is the third person of the Trinity that proceeds from the Father and the Son. These are very sort of basics about who God is that the articles start with. Really quickly, um, that's who God is. How is he known? And if you keep in the back of your head what's happening in the medieval Roman church, um, you see why these are important. Article 6 talks about the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. Um, We'll just read that. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not read therein is not required by any man. And so we want to say, look, it's all in the Bible. Anything the church says about God is subject to the authority of Scripture. And if the church is saying something that's not in the Bible, then you don't have to believe it. The Scriptures contain all things that are necessary to salvation. And so if we say God is a trinity, we we say that not lightly. We say that under the full support of Holy Scripture. Um, And this is really important. It also touches on a very good uh, Reformed idea about... um, it's called the perspicuity of Scripture. Anybody know that word, perspicuity? Any? Don knows. What it, not to put you on the spot. <laughs> the clearness of Scripture. Scripture is clear. Now, some of you are thinking, no, it's not. I've read it. <laughs> uh, the idea is, if you read your Bible, you would know how to be made right with God. That's the bottom line. If you read your Bible... You will know how we are made right with God. It is abundantly clear, and that's true. There are things about Scripture that are very confusing um, and things that need study and explaining. But at the end of the day, and I've heard many testimonies, <clears throat> many, many, even um, one, again, a mere inclinism of a, of a Muslim who just said, I'm going to read my Bible. And they could not put it down because God had captured their heart. They probably couldn't explain the Trinity when they finished, but they knew that Jesus loved them and died for them. And that is abundantly clear in the Scriptures, how we are saved. There's an article about the Old Testament that says, um, look, the Old Testament is Scripture and it points us to Jesus. And so even when we're reading the Old Testament, we need to say, what is this telling us about Jesus? Okay, if you read the Old Testament and come to conclusions that a Jewish person would agree with 100%, you haven't quite gotten all the way yet because it's pointing us to Christ. Um, and that's what, you know, when we preach, even when we preach on the Old Testament, we want to see how, how even these are pointing us to Jesus as the ultimate revelation of Scripture. And then finally, 39 articles affirm the creeds of the church, um, the Nicene Creed um, and the Apostles' Creed specifically. And so we say the Nicene Creed every week in our worship. And that's important because we are saying what we believe. The Word of God is preached, and then we're saying, therefore, I believe this about who God is. Now, this is important, okay? Because if you are saturated, okay, think about this. Week in and week out, if you're saturated in the creed of the church, you begin to internalize it. You begin to sort of memorize it, even. Um, Let's say you're reading your Bible, okay? And you read a passage, and you look. it looks like, oh, maybe there's three gods. And then you think back to the creed. No, I believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's like, a, it's like guardrails for reading Scripture, okay? There's lots of interpretation in the middle. But when you start to bump up against these guardrails, you know you're about to go out of bounds. The creed keeps us focused on Jesus. 
It's rooted in Scripture. It's, um, it's all in Scripture, and it's a product of very smart people, much smarter than any of us, um, thinking about God, putting it down, and giving it to the church to recite week in and week out. And it's thousands of years old. I mean, it's 15, 1,700 years old. I mean, and, and so it's time-tested as well. And so the creeds are really important for what we believe about God. Any questions? Anybody? Okay. Um, I'm going to take five more minutes, and then we'll stop. Um, that should give us time to get the kids and, and get over to the church building. Um, the real debates in, this will be the last one we do, the real debates in the Reformation weren't about necessarily God and sort of these metaphysical ideas, but they were about how we are saved, okay? Um, and one of the key components of this is the acknowledgement that we are sinners, that we are born sinners. Um, and so this is one of the articles of original or birth sin. Um, I'll just read it and we'll talk about it. Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, but is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit, and therefore in every person born into this world it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. So, that's pretty clear. Uh, they don't mince words. We are born sinful. I think um, something that's really important, though, is this. Our sin is not because we followed Adam, okay? Our sin is because that's our nature is to follow Adam. We can't help but follow Adam. That's what we do. You come out of the womb, you're following Adam. That's, that's in our hearts as a product of the fall, um, it, so again, it's not like you're born sinless and then very quickly you choose sin. I mean, you're born sinful. Now, if your wife is pregnant, don't go home and tell her that. Um, just trust me. <laughs> but that's the reality of it. We're born in this fallen, sinful state that deserves what? God's wrath and damnation. That's where we are. And that's a problem. And if we know the way God has laid out the salvation, okay, um, it could go one of two ways. It could either be wholesome and comforting, um, or it could be very legalistic and something we're always striving for and never sure if we've gotten. And that was the problem facing the Reformers. That was the problem facing the English church. Um, How do we embed the grace of God into our worship in our daily lives in such a way that allows um, the Holy Spirit to work and to bear the fruits of repentance. Um, that's where I'm going to stop. A little bit of a Debbie Downer there. Um, but but that's, that, you know, that's where we are. So we're born sinful. The question then is going to be, how are we saved and what does that mean? And how do we see that in our worship? And that's what we'll um, get to work on next week. Uh, questions? Yes, Richard. Great question. Um, so the question is, if we're born in sin, how could a baby who is not turned to Jesus, um, who maybe dies, 
receive God's forgiveness. Um, and uh, I think, you know, Scripture doesn't speak specifically to that. And so then we have to draw on, well, what do we know about God? And what do we know about who he is? And we know that God is good and loving and gracious. And so I think we have to say um, God is not going to turn his back on these little ones because he knows them. He created them in their mother's womb. He knows, um, he knows the number of hairs on their head. And so that, that he would um, welcome them into his kingdom. That would be my response um, pastorally. And I think that's a, that would be consistent with who God is. Uh, does that answer your question, Richard? Yeah. It's not, the, it's not an issue the Bible takes up. And I think so much in the Bible is assumed under family faithfulness as well that um, they don't see a distinct, they don't see individuals in the same way we do as Americans. I mean, we're all about our individual rights, for instance, but Scripture doesn't have, they're not, it's not written in that lens of individuality, and it's very much a community sort of thing. Um, and so for them, there might not have even been that, that question. Let's see, there's, there's one here first in the booth. Hey, Tom. Yeah. I would say it's very similar to what Richard asked, the same question Richard asked. This is a, whether he's in the womb or out of the womb, um, I would say that the death of a baby is, is, is something that we appeal to God's gracious love for. Um, so, yes. And Boo? Okay. Hmm. Okay. I actually I'll look it up. Oh. Okay. Okay, well there you go. So Boo is referring to a story in Kings where there's a prophecy about a whole line of um of of family being taken out, but God um God took a baby because he loved him and cared for them. And so that would certainly point to this idea of a gracious God um, receiving his littlest ones into the kingdom. Thank you for that. Yes. Yeah, great question. Yeah, why? What? Right. Well, that's, so that's the challenge is because the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God. It's the same God. And so how are we going to reconcile these two? And that's, we will get, I'll, I'm going to tell you now, but also just point you to next week because we will talk about this in more depth. Um, but what we want to say is that um, we have to remember our status to fully understand God's love for us. And so if we don't know how far away from God we actually are, we can't fully appreciate how deep his love is to come and get us from the depths of our sin. And so we need to be able to say, um, look, God loves you 
Um, now do you accept that love? We, we have to make a decision to accept the love of Jesus Christ at some point in our lives. And when we're young, our parents make that decision for us. But, it, but at some point, we've got to own that for ourselves. And to really accept the love of Christ, we have to know where we stand. Because if we say, if we don't talk about this some and sin and sort of our, our stance outside of, of, God's, of, um, of God's family, um, then why would, you know, why do we need Jesus if, if we're not, if we don't come with this sin in us? And so um, the idea we want to be able to say is, is, is look, uh, left to our own devices, we're in pretty bad shape. But because of the grace of Christ, we're brought into the kingdom of God. And that's sort of, that's where we're going. I mean, that's sort of the reformers. Um, they needed to remind people of their status before God so that they could really know how much Jesus loved them. Um, and that's where, that's what we'll see next week. Um, I'm going to have to wrap it up and go to another church service. Um, you can text or email me questions. We can answer them next week. Um, just so you all know, in two weeks, when Sunday school starts back up, um, there's going to be two options. Um, in here, Tripp and I will be doing the I Am Statements of Christ from John's Gospel. There's seven I Am Statements. So we're going to be talking about those. Um, as part of our membership track, if you are interested in membership, you need to either tape Alpha, um, which is going to be on Tuesday nights, or Basic Christianity, which will be led by Scott Pelker. Now that's going to start, I think it's February 21st, um, in, well, I'm not sure what room it is, but we'll need you to sign up for that so you can get a book. When we know how many people are coming, we'll tell you what room it's in. Um, but if you're seeking membership and can't do Alpha, um, you probably need to take Basic Christianity to, to get that component under your belt. Um, and I can answer questions about that afterwards. Come up and see me, and I'll answer your question about that. Um, all right, let's pray. Oh, or Curcio, was that what you were going to say? Yes, there you go. Or you could take Curcio. If you have a question about that, you can talk to me. Um, Lord, be with you. Lord, thank you for equipping us to think about the hard things of you. And I pray um, that you give us grace to see you more clearly as we consider these things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.